0: Uh, If you have a Bible this morning, we're going to spend just a brief moment uh, of our time together in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you'd like to turn there with me, I'd love for you to. uh, We'll read from verse number 18 in just a few minutes. Um, You know, I do a lot of thinking about history and about how we fit into what God has been doing for more than 2,000 years I mean, hes of course, has been active in the world uh, since the beginning of our, our time. But the church, of course, being established 2,000 years ago, um, you know it may seem silly to some that uh, we gather together in an assembly like this, dedicated to uh, just a few hours a week uh, to corporately worship. Uh, it, it may seem silly to some that we would celebrate uh, and exult at the sight of someone being immersed or in, being baptized into water. Uh, it, it may seem unnecessary. That someone make a public uh, proclamation of their faith, uh, you could just keep it to yourself, right? Uh, It it may seem archaic keeping a tradition that dates back all those years. Uh, It may seem foolish staking your faith on a man who lived and died on the other side of the world when the world is a much different place than it was in his time. It may seem foolish choosing to pursue a lifestyle that's more about giving than taking, serving than lording, uh, that values second place more than first place, that sees gain and losing, that doesn't deem things like meekness and forgiveness as weaknesses, but as virtues and strengths. It may seem foolish to some to proclaim a Jewish carpenter as God's Messiah. It may seem foolish to to see a man that was crucified by his own people and was considered a threat to his own government. Uh, But we believe, we believe he was much more than a man. It may seem silly and unnecessary, archaic and foolish, but to those who choose this path, to countless men and women, boys and girls that have went before us, Alongside two billion plus people in our world today, to every one of us who believes, it is something more something much more. First Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen, the Apostle Paul summarizes his ministry in a very succinct way. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message seems like folly to those on the outside looking in, but to those that are within and those that are following Jesus and those that are taking part in all the different uh, forms and fashions of worshiping him, to those of us that are here today and alongside those of us in many different churches, in many different places, in many different languages that are worshiping, for those of us that are following Jesus, it is the power of God to us. You know, we gather here today, we sing these songs today, we celebrate the faith of a child today, because all of this reflects the saving power of God available to us. The apparent folly of Christianity still remains impenetrable to some, though. The idea that God would step into our shoes, take on our skin, because he saw that there was a need that we couldn't fix for ourselves, even though ours was a mess we had made for ourselves. I mean, that's a paradox, isn't it? Why would God do this when it isn't really is it his responsibility? Is he obligated to do something for people that clearly can't help themselves and, and have made a mess for themselves and sometimes make it worse? You know, the Greeks and the Romans believed that the gods did come down to check on people, but only in phantom form, only in the appearance of people. And if the Roman or the Greek gods came to visit people, it was only for tribute. They didn't come to give anything. They came to take stuff to see how much somebody would give to them for peace. Why would a God, even more, if there is only one God, why would the greatest and almighty God debase himself, humiliate himself by vacating a position of infinite and matchless power and glory, why would he become a mere mortal? Why would the God who has no clock that's ever kept him or that's ever put him on its schedule, why would he somehow suddenly put himself within the parameters of human life? And by becoming human, he didn't just step into or onto earth from heaven fully formed. No, he came into the world like all of us come into the world, as a baby. His incarnation began in the womb of a young woman, and from there he began his earthly journey. So why would God do this? How silly, unnecessary, how backwards, how foolish would that is that idea, even when you think about it. Yet that he would do this, many attested to him doing this. It was so unbelievable and it's so unbelievable that it's almost without question believable anyone making up a story in religion that was to convince the world that their god was the greatest and strongest and most worthy would almost certainly not begin the story with their god becoming an embryo a fetus or even a baby isn't god too big and too holy and too glorious for that surely some things are beneath the most high god right Yet that's the path that our God took. Because in order to save us, he had to walk our same path and be perfect where we had not been and could not be. Again, why? Why would God do this? Why would the one and only God come to earth the way that he did to give us something that we don't deserve? But well, according to those that heard him speak regularly, it was because he had a relentless and extraordinary love for us all. Again, why would God love a species most defined by uh, their flaws and their failures? It sounds foolish on his part. It's so not required on his part. Nobody made him do this, and why would he, why would he do it? That's the folly that he was willing to take on himself. And he took that folly all the way to a Roman cross. The ultimate symbol of corruption and oppression this world was made known for. The ultimate reminder how lopsided the world was, how unjust, how unfair the world was. The cross was Rome's instrument of torture. They boasted uh, of their own prowess and how unstoppable their force was and how their expansion was at the expense of those beneath them. God had waited for the perfect time, the perfect backdrop and stage to enact his redemption plan. He watched as empires took turns ruling the world, flexing their might over the masses, perfecting their ability to paralyze any would-be dissenters. Daniel, the prophet, saw a vision of all the different evils coming together in one form, and most believe that horrifying beast that he saw was the empire of Rome, ruled by a family of self-ordained gods. They took the form, uh, they took a form of capital punishment and sharpened it, refined it to its ur form, and made the cross. They were trigger happy with crucifixion, proud of de- and defiant of their unrivaled ability to keep the world in line. Records show they crucified sometimes thousands of people a day across their mass- massive jurisdiction. The amount of bloodshed that spilled down the grains of Roman crosses is immeasurable and truly embodies the darkest and most depraved things about humanity. And while those beneath them were victims in almost every way, almost everyone dreamed of a day when their own kingdom would bring up their own hero who could reverse the roles and give Rome a taste of its own medicine. Nobody knew a world that operated any other way. To fight Rome, it would have to be with fire greater than Rome was putting out. It was into that world that God stepped in, a world full of bitter unrest, a world waiting for a warrior to rise up and avenge their blood. No people had been more trod over than the Jewish people. Their lot in life seemed to be beneath the feet of the world's superpowers. God always operated within, in the midst of this tiny, unlikely nation, uh, perhaps showing that he always did things a little bit differently than most would expect. Choosing the approach that most would question, it was into this people that God himself entered the world as one of them from one of their own, raised in an unassuming, unlikely family. He grew up in a world longing for a revolutionary, vying for rebellion and revenge against its adversaries, believing against hope that God might send them a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed hero who would defeat and destroy their enemies. Yet overlooked for years in their company was this young rabbi named Jesus who had a name taken after the ancient warrior and founder of Israel Joshua but Jesus was no Joshua <laughs> he was no warrior he was just a carpenter nothing about Jesus suggested anything special about him until he started performing signs and wonders and people began to ooh and ah and say clearly this man works the power of God but after he began became famous he began preaching he began teaching And his sermons did not match up with his miracles. In fact, his power was continually undermined by his passive, humble demeanor and rhetoric. He had the power to command nature. He could heal the sick. Yet he used his platform to preach vanilla and toothless values, love and mercy and generosity and forgiveness and patience and purity. Who's going to start a revolution with that? Yeah, he does some great miracles, but Jesus, could you kind of beef up, add some teeth to your sermons? Because that's not going to scare them all, that's not going to get us our power back. That's not going to change the world. (laughs) Love your enemies. I mean, who does that, and who would do that, and why would we do that? Just give them more time to plan to take from us. All the while, Jesus kept healing people and proving he was from heaven by exercising heaven's power. His followers wanted so badly for him to catch the rest by surprise and usher in the kingdom with swift vindication. But he preached the exact opposite, that his kingdom was coming in an unexpected way, that it would be entered in by those who were willing to sacrifice the world's treasure and the world's pleasure. And most heard him and they thought Jesus We're the least of society. We're the bottom feeders. I mean, how much more do we got to give away? We barely have anything to give. Save your life by losing it. If we have no life left, what will there be to save Jesus? Whatever he meant, it was undeniable that he possessed the saving power of God. Thousands were fed on one occasion by a little boy's lunchbox. The blind received their sight. The disabled were raised to their feet. And most convincing, a dead man was raised back to life. So even though they were unimpressed and unmoved by his sermons and his lessons, there was no questioning that he was indeed a man sent by God because how else could he do the things that he did? And this is why the masses kept following him. Yeah, the sermons had some good points sometimes, but they were determined to see him through. They were determined to make him their king, and maybe he was just stringing them along. Maybe, just maybe, they had to stay in touch just to see what his final act would be. So they demanded him to be their king. They assumed it, and many would would hope he would go along when they would confess things like this. Nathanael said, you are the king of Israel, and Jesus said, no thanks, Nathanael. I'm not here to be a king. Follow me, but that's not where we're going And on one occasion, they begged him and they even tried to force it. Perceiving that they were about to make, come and take him by force and make him king. I mean, how would that even work? Jesus withdrew himself because he saw what they were planning. Another occasion, they planned a great parade that they thought he could not resist the stage they were setting for him. They took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Yet every single time he refused to take them up on their offer, nobody could figure him out. If he was really God in flesh, why would he carry himself like this? Why this mystery? It seemed kind of foolish. One minute he would refuse to be law of this king, and the next minute he was telling a parable about the kingdom of God and the coming king from God. They couldn't figure him out. Most unnerved and upset by it, Jesus were the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the government of Israel. After three years, every time the crowds grew disenchanted, they would come back because of the next miracle. But the religious leaders, they had enough. Every festival was ruined by Jesus, overshadowed by Jesus. He was driving them crazy. He was pulling, you know, pulling them at their seams. So they decided to get Rome involved. And they knew once they got Rome involved in a would-be seditionist, Rome would act very quickly to snuff out an insurrection. Because Rome was very intolerant of revolts and had a perfect weapon to deal with rebels. So the Sanhedrin stacked their deck. They came at Jesus with charges uh, that were far from his nature as imaginable. Yet as passive as Jesus was, he went along with it like a lamb before the slaughter. He was brought before the Roman governor, Pilate, early one morning as as if to suggest the matter was urgent. Pilate, you got to get up early. We've got a real troublemaker on our, our hands. He was unimpressed. He was unconcerned. Jesus wouldn't even speak in the initial interrogation. Pilate was actually insulted, rather than, especially after the religious leaders made out like Jesus was some terrorist plotting some big event or a big attack on Rome. So Pilate had Jesus whipped and beaten where he could not even walk afterwards, crawling because of the flogging on his back. But the Jews told Pilate that Jesus said things like he was the son of God, that he came from heaven. And Pilate was in disbelief. You mean that man? That man that literally just stood there and let me flog him within an inch of death? The man that wouldn't even defend himself? You say that man claims to be the son of God? Pilate says maybe I need to hear him out some more, but I I, I don't. I don't see it in that guy. What are you guys afraid of? Pilate couldn't figure Jesus out. He knew the nature of kings. He knew the nature of would-be kings. He had killed many wannabe kings. And Jesus did not have any bit of that want for power, that nefarious and ruthless lust. And he was about to face a Roman cross and he wouldn't even say a word? As Pilate began to think about it, he actually was shaken up by this. Because why would Jesus just stand there and take all this if he actually was somebody who could fight back? So he brought Jesus back in one more time. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, Where are you from? Where? What kind of king are you? Where is your kingdom? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said, You will not speak to me? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and I have the authority to crucify you? Do you not know what I'm capable of? At this point, Pilate is so ego hungry and, and so much of a, you know, megalomaniac. He is insulted by Jesus, just defiant toward all this. But this got Jesus to speak. Jesus said, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you. From above and he wasn't talking about Rome and Pilate knew he wasn't talking about Rome so Pilate took the bait oh you you want to see what kind of authority I have you want to see what happens when you surrender to me Huh? I'll show you what kind of power I've got Jesus of Nazareth so he delivered him over To be crucified. And they took Jesus. Lifeless, without resistance. They took his beaten body. And they drug him. And they nailed him to a cross. And this was the part they didn't expect. After they nailed him to a cross and asked a man to help him get to the hill, Jesus said, no, 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 I don't need your help which scared all of them to death as this beaten, weakened man, bled out on the floor of Pilate's palace, began to stagger his way to a place called the skull. And there, they crucified him. Two others were there too because he was just a common criminal. One on the left, one on the middle, one on the right. There Jesus was in the middle. But Pilate had the last word. He wrote on an inscription and put it on the cross Jesus of Nazareth, King, not just a king, the King of the Jews. And Pilate gleeed as he wrote this and documented this is what happens to kings who dare defy me or my Roman brothers. You know, perhaps this was Satan's way of trying to acid wash all that Jesus had done and taught and stood for those years. Look at where that got him, some king, huh? In all that, Jesus had spoken truth, but in many ways, it was like he only poked the bear just to get it to bite. And it did bite back. And so it happened. And there he was, God on a cross. God backed into a corner. It seemed impossible. Yet God nailed on a cross. Why? To what end? He hung on a cross, welcomed on himself all that's broken about this world. All the sin, all the shame, all the suffering. And it came down on him. You know, Jesus had done the impossible for a man or as a human. He lived a perfect life from attitude to actions, from words to works. He did what nobody er had ever done or could ever do. He lived a perfect life. But he also did the unthinkable for a God, as far as anyone had ever thought gods to be like or expected gods to be like. But as the one and only God, he did the unthinkable. He came before his subjects and he surrendered and served them surrendered to them. Those condemned by his law in his presence, he offered himself as a substitute for them to suffer what sinners were owed as both God and man. Jesus didn't go to that cross by accident or coincidence. It was on purpose for a purpose. He went there for you and he went there for me. As unexpected as it was, as unthinkable as it was, as foolish as it seemed, he went there, he suffered there, he died there for you and for me and for the whole world. He rose back to life to enact a new world order, a new kingdom agenda, wherein people would come to know God by faith and be known for their faith and their boldness and their courage in the face of uncertainty and anxiety and animosity. Many may see everything he stood for and spoke about and that his death and resurrection stand for and that all that came after that, the church and what we are a part of, many may see this and feel like it's built on foolish pretenses. Yet for us, it is the saving power of God. He died and rose again to give us a firm foundation, a new identity, a heavenly perspective. When we think we have it all together, when we think about it, how it all came together, when we, amount, when we begin to piece all this together and see how it all played out, what Jesus stood for and what he died for, we should have an unwavering confidence in God, especially when there are reasons to doubt. Because Jesus did it all a different way, the foolish way from the world's perspective. We should have an unwavering confidence in God when there are reasons to doubt. In fact, perhaps, when we, perhaps we should be skeptical when everything looks foolproof, perhaps we should be concerned when, it, when we feel like we've got it all put together, because maybe, maybe that's when our confidence is in the wrong place. Just maybe. First Corinthians one nineteen says this was God's agenda and doing it the way he did it and saving us the way he saved us. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. As we celebrate baptism today, as we worship our crucified and resurrected king, we are reminded of how God works and we should be emboldened to pray for his will to be done in our lives. If only to have more evidence of his saving power. God does not do things our way or the way this world works. God did something that the world thought was foolish. (laughs) Why would God end up on a cross? To save you and me. Down in verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren. Brothers and sisters, that not many wise according to the flesh. And he's not saying that you can't have wisdom or, or, or be, be intelligent. He's saying that you didn't get here through your own ideas or your own ability. Not many wise according to the flesh. Not many mighty. Not many noble are called. That's not how we come to God. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God used a Roman cross to save us. Not a ruling king. The base thing of this world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing, the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence but of him who are of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us the wisdom from God the righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written he who glories let him glory in the Lord and today you and I alongside brothers and sisters all around the world and all throughout history we glory today we celebrate today we worship today because of what God has done in spite of what we can't do and instead of what we might can do his proof his power is all we need and all we should ever seek this is why christian this is why you should relish in the ways that the world might decry or deem silly archaic and not necessary and foolish because it's the work of god on a cross that has brought us to this place today This is why if you're a child or if you're a teenager, a young adult or anywhere in the world where you may be doing it God's way and it may feel like you're going against the grain, this is why you should be emboldened and you should stand firm because you know your salvation came by a Roman cross, by a way that the world thought was foolish and unnecessary and humiliating for a God to ever take. Yet that is the road that Jesus took and that is the way that you and I made it here today. It's the work of God on the cross that has brought us here today. It's the grace of God that saves our lives. When the world says this is the way, when the world says there's no other way, when the world scrapes and claws and fights for power, when people try to say, unless you choose their side, it means doomsday. We can boast because we don't have to take sides. We can rise above because our faith is in a greater king, a risen king who was crucified by the Romans. We boast in the work of God. The path that God may take us down may seem unnavigable at times. God may take any one of you down a pathway that seems like it is beyond the ability to navigate and overcome the obstacles and challenges along the way, but you should be reminded that in those obstacles, you can see the power of God. You don't see a roadblock. You don't see a hurdle. You don't see a dead end. You see something that through which God is going to work his power and prove to you that his way, is the greatest and the ultimate and the only way. That's why when you read the Bible, the, the teachings about morality and about finances and about how politics and everything else should work in this world, it is against the grain of every worldwide ideal, right, left, and anywhere in between. Because God's way is different. God's way is better, and God's way is what brings redemption to our lives. That may seem foolish to some, But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I'm reminded of the story of Moses, how he was born into a world where the people of God were suffering greatly. Once guests in in Egypt now oppressed people, slaves to an evil empire. For fear of being outnumbered, Pharaoh commanded all baby boys be cast into the river upon birth. You know the story, Moses' mom hides him for as long as she could, but at three months old, she couldn't hide him, any, that he was a boy anymore. So she came up with an idea. She made a basket out of reeds and said, I'm going to commit him into the hands of God and placed him in the Nile River and sailed him to where she thought she would never see him again. But the story goes that Pharaoh's daughter was in the river that day and saw that basket and opened it up and saw a baby, a Hebrew baby boy. And and the story goes that even his own mother was called upon to nurse him, yet she turned him back over to Pharaoh's daughter after he was weaned. And don't you see how this was all working out? How God was going to raise up in the palace of Pharaoh, the deliverer of his own people, how nobody else would know it, but yet the prince of Egypt would be a Hebrew I mean, it seemed like it was God's perfect plan. And maybe Moses even thought that. Maybe he even believed, this is how I'm gonna save my people from within as king one day. Yet that's not how the story goes, is it? Moses was watching over one of the taskmasters, one of his own men that was abusing one of his own Hebrew people in a crisis of conscience. Do I stand in this position and ignore that, that I might one day become powerful enough to stop it? Or do I act now and stop this senseless act? So you know what he did? He, he took the Egyptians' life to save his own people's life, yet they didn't respond the way he thought they would. And he was scared. And he ran away and spent the next 40 years of his life in exile, afraid of what would be done to him by Pharaoh. The story goes that Pharaoh died, his stepfather died, and his stepbrother became the next Pharaoh. And don't you think Moses might have thought, I could have been the next Pharaoh. I could have been next in line. I could have just, if I could have just watched that happen and ignored it and made it to the palace, made it to the throne, maybe I could have saved my people that way. But he had to do what was right. And sometimes doing the right thing seems like it's ill-timed. But it's never the wrong thing to do when God says to do it. So Moses ended up being the deliverer of his people, but not the way that it might've seemed like it was meant to work out. God met him at the backside of the desert and said, Moses, this is my plan all along. Follow me, trust in me. I'll take you back to Pharaoh's palace, but I don't need you to be king to deliver my people. You're gonna be my messenger. We'll do it my way. You know, God's plan often involves us doing the right thing that costs us in order to set up a much more rewarding future. And we know that was the case for Moses and that can be the case for all of us. God's way may seem foolish, may seem unnecessary, may seem like it's just not even something we should have or want to do. But to us who follow the path that God has laid out for us, we know, don't we? It is the power of God. You know, it may seem foolish through our eyes, but when we see through Jesus' cross, the saving power of God is revealed. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. Thanks be to God for such a prize, such a promise, such power. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are, being, who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Perhaps today, this helps us all make a decision to take that next step as we follow the Lord. Maybe the first step or maybe this next step and many that will come later. We're reminded by the faith of a little girl. We're reminded by the faith of one another. We're Remind, reminded by the history we're a part of that God's way is not always the way the world goes. It's not always the way our eyes see how things should go. But God's way is always what results in the power of God being put on display. You can have faith in him. You can have confidence in him that his way is the right way because Jesus went the most unconventional, most unnecessary, most out of left field way. To save you and to save me. To show you that your sins can be forgiven, your life can be redeemed, your heart can be changed. That's the confidence that you and I can have today. And that's why we still celebrate and we still sing in Jesus' name. And that's why we will always do it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would encourage us all to always follow you to take the path that you have laid out for us, to pursue you and follow the way of the cross. It may seem foolish. It may seem unnecessary. It may seem archaic. It may seem completely avoidable. But to those that choose to follow Jesus, to those that trust in him, we know it is the power of God. It is the saving power of God. Lord, maybe today there's somebody that needs to make a decision to put their faith in you for the first time, maybe to renew their faith in you, to recommit to you. Lord, all of us have a need in our life. All of us have an opportunity today to uh, put more faith and to put more trust and to take our faith out of this world and to put it in Jesus Lord, maybe we're wearied by a thing in the world that just isn't working out as we thought it should or thought it would and we expected it to and we had it all planned out and all was working out as we thought it should but yet things changed and now we've got a decision to make and that decision, we can confidently and without question place it in Jesus' hands because he has proven to be for us. His power has proven to be upon us. It's in Jesus' name we ask and pray and give you this time of reflection and invitation. Amen.